Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Seek Go Create podcast. This is Tim Winders, your host. I just want to thank you for downloading and listening. Plus, I want to continue to thank those who are commenting, sharing, and rating. You know, just this morning, we received an email at our uh, at our email at Seek Go Create. And uh, it was from friend, it was some friends, actually, that I know in Idaho, Darla and Rod. And the comment was great. I'm just going to read it. They said, Tim, we thoroughly enjoyed your origin story. Recently, we did an origin story on how we came up with the name Seek, Go, Create. People have asked about that. He said, we thoroughly enjoyed your origin story and find many similarities in our journey that encourage us about where God is taking us. Thank you for being a blessing to us. I appreciate that, Darla and Rod. And, you know, I guess above all else, I would hope that we can be a blessing to those that are listening. If anyone wants to contact us, feel free to do that at seekgocreate.com. That's seekgocreate.com. Or you can email us at connect at seekgocreate.com. And we will read every email and attempt to respond if possible. I appreciate you and want to provide great content, interviews, and value for everyone listening. And today is not going to disappoint. I have Paul Moore, Paul Moore as our guest. And I tell you, Paul is one impressive guy. I'm going to read his bio and then I'm going to have him give some of his background. But uh, Paul has an engineering degree. And Paul, first of all, I have an engineering degree, so we're going to have some fun with that. And then I also notice you have your MBA from Ohio State. And actually, it was listed Ohio State. I believe it is the Ohio State. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get in trouble. They've got a branding thing going there. So it is from the Ohio State. He has started and sold a staffing company that earned him a final Award for Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 96 and 97. He began investing in real estate in 2000 and he flipped over 50 homes, 25 high end waterfront lots, appeared on HGTV's House Hunters, rehabbed and managed dozens of rental properties, built a number of new homes, developed a subdivision, started successful online real estate marketing firms quite extensive background obviously in real estate so we're going to have fun with that on this episode he's also the author of the perfect investment create enduring wealth from the historic shift to multifamily housing a book he wrote in 2016 and he also co-hosts a wealth building podcast called how to lose money and is a regular contributor to bigger pockets and fox business paul welcome to the seat go create podcast Hey, it's great to be here, Tim. Thanks so much. I'm honored to be on your show. Yeah, thank you for being here. Listen, I, what a great bio and very impressive. We're going to have a fun, have fun with a lot of those. But just before we get too much farther, I like to do this. In your own words, your elevator pitch or your elevator pitch or whatever, what do you do? So I work with, uh, I, I'm a founding a director of Wellings Capital, and we walk alongside accredited investors to help them create more wealth and save on taxes. Uh, the, specifically, we found that a lot of people, especially with the advent of HGTV and all the shows out there uh, that want to get in real estate investing, and at some point, almost a very large percent, let's put it that way, decide they want to upgrade to commercial real estate, but they don't know who to trust, they don't know where to start, they don't have an on-ramp. And so Wellings Capital provides an on-ramp for these folks to get involved in recession-resistant commercial real estate. And so we have a fund, we have a number of funds actually that allow people to invest and own a fractional piece of dozens of commercial real estate assets that we vet. Excellent. That's exciting because I think 
that's kind of going to give us, I think, a path for where we're going to go on the podcast, because I actually want to tap into a lot of your experiences, a lot of your background, because I know we have listeners that may not have any interest in real estate, but some that just say, I would like to know some basics. I'd like to know some some ground level type things. You've got experience in that. And then what you just mentioned is, is you give people a path really to go down. It's almost like a, a roadmap. And so I'm excited about that. I, something though is kind of, I just kind of feel as if before we dive into business and real estate, that I'm supposed to ask you about your family and just have you take a few seconds or a minute or so and just tell us about your family and what they're doing because I know you've got children that are grown so is that okay can you just give us a absolutely little- yeah I've been married 33 years and the first 20 were honestly pretty hard uh, my wife and I both you know came to the marriage with uh, expectations and difficult things from our past that actually made it pretty hard but we persevered and uh, now we're as happy as we can be. So we're uh, 33 years in. We've got four kids, three good ones, and I'm just kidding. Uh, that's a little joke I say in front of my youngest, and she'll pipe up and say, and one fantastic one. Yeah, so anyway, uh, my son is a real estate investor. He's 26. He graduated from college last year. He went a little bit late, and he actually made $145,000 his first year out of college working part-time because he's got a really cool real estate investing strategy. So I'm really proud of him. I probably shouldn't have told his income. He's probably going to smack me. Um, My daughter is at Bethel. She's been uh, at Bethel Church uh, in Redding, California for about three and a half years. She works in music and film there. Um, I've got a daughter, 18, who graduated from high school last year. She works for her older brother. And then I've got a daughter in ninth grade as well. They're all awesome. Very cool. And I, I don't, again, I don't know why I was felt the need to ask that. Maybe because I've got so many business topics on this. I said, huh, let's kind of start this off with the best stuff first before we get into uh, the business. So, yeah, I, I, I do wonder if your son's going to be excited about you sharing his income. That's Oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, I'm really, we're really proud of him. Excellent. Excellent. Cool. And that's what parents are all about is kind of helping, you know, stretch our children and at times maybe even embarrass them, right? So, yeah, right. So listen, there's uh, there's something I want to go back to in your bio to kind of start off with. You know, when we when we have to look at where these podcasts fit on Apple and Spotify and all, we have to kind of pick a category. And we are actually in the entrepreneur category. And you, from reading your bio, probably and definitely because you were nominated to, for you know, the, the entrepreneur of the year, I, I would like to kind of start off this, this conversation with having just a discussion about entrepreneur. And I guess the first thing that I want to ask you, because I think you probably define it as well as anyone is how do you define what an entrepreneur is? I think an entrepreneur is somebody who cre- is very creative and takes something and creates something that wasn't there before out of nothing. And so somebody who takes an idea, a passion, they find a niche where, you know, that's being deeply underserved, hopefully, whether it's a rest, a certain type of restaurant in a certain part of town or a new way of investing in mobile home parks or whatever it is and creating something to serve mankind. And so, 
uh, I would say that that is it. I, I will say that I think that uh, entrepreneurs, I think one huge mistake, you didn't ask this, but I, I thought you should. Um, one huge mistake I made as an entrepreneur was chasing shiny objects. I, you know, I was uh, on a, a Colby, K-O-L-B-E, Colby test. I was a quick start 10, which means I'm definitely somebody who rushes in quickly, starts something new, and then by nature would easily move on to something else once it's up and running. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make and something that if I had to do over again, I would have done it a lot different, I think. Well, that was, that was actually kind of a follow-up question. I was going to ask you what makes them special, different, or scary. And maybe that's what you just answered that. But when you were saying that, it actually caused me to maybe connect something to something you said earlier. You mentioned the first 20 years of your married life was somewhat difficult. Do you think it had anything to do with that entrepreneur gene or, or maybe taming it a little bit? Was that, are they related? I never thought about that before. I don't necessarily think so because we were married when I was in college and uh, then the first five years or so, uh, six years of our marriage, I worked at Ford Motor Company in Detroit and it was, those were some of the most difficult years. So uh, now I think it was related to you know, life in a fallen world and painful things that happened specifically to my wife in childhood that just had never got healed until much more recently. Mm, yeah, because I've always wondered, I sometimes call myself an entrepreneur and sometimes I just wonder if I have this issue if I just get bored. <laughs> yeah, right, it's easy to do. Yeah, because you obviously have, have done many things now. You also, you combine two things that are near and dear to my heart. That is entrepreneurship and, of course, real estate we'll talk about in a moment, but also engineering. Uh, what, what type of engineering were you and how does that kind of relate to who you are now? I had uh, a degree in petroleum engineering, which was my first mistake. <laughs> and um, I actually, uh, when I went into school, there were um, seven graduates out of the senior class and they had an average of seven job offers each. When I graduated, there were about 80 or 90 graduates and they had a total of seven job offers. And so I didn't even, uh, I didn't even think about trying to get a job. Oil prices were, you know, they had dropped down to like $12 a barrel at the time. And so I decided to go ahead and go straight for an MBA. And that was actually a really good move for me. Yeah. What are the, I mean, one of the things that I run across with engineers, I guess even entrepreneurs might even have this also is that there is a little bit of a thought, hopefully I'm not putting words in your mouth. I don't think it's that we're smarter than other people, but maybe that engineers have a little bit of something that others don't have. Correct me if, I mean, would you agree with that, disagree? You know, I'm gonna say something I've never said on a podcast before, though we've talked about engineering. I, I was never an engineer. <laughs> and what I mean by that is this, I, I got, almost straight A's in high school and physics and math and chemistry and all that stuff, calculus. But I should have been a marketing person. I should have been a writer. I uh, should have been somebody who was involved in content creation all along. And so I just never really fit the mold. And um, like I said, that was probably a mistake. Now, I really appreciate the rigor and the pain I went through for those four years of engineering school. And so for that, I'm very grateful. Yeah, it sounds like you and I may be similar in that, in that I, t I, 
I looked at the most in-demand jobs when I got out of high school. Four out, yeah. of, the, four out of the five were engineers. I, I lived down the road from Georgia Tech in Atlanta. And I said, huh, I'll be an engineer. I'm okay in math. I'm okay in science. And very similar to you, I got in there. I said, ooh, I'm not sure that I'm wired like some of these other folks. These are some smart people in, in here. Yeah, I don't think I really realized it until I was in my 40s when I started doing marketing and realized my heart came alive. Yeah, I think that's part of the, and really this actually leads to the next question. I think that's part of our journey, though, is identifying as much what we aren't supposed to do as, uh, as much as what we're supposed to do. Tell us, mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that journey that you went in. You mentioned Ford Motor Company. We know that you were Entrepreneur of the Year after you left there. But tell us about you know coming out of school, a little bit of that journey that you went through, and kind of be prepared because some of the things I like to do on this podcast, Paul, is ask people about the big struggles that they go through that define them. So, sure. mm -hmm. so I got out of uh, I got out of school, went to Ford Motor Company, and honestly, uh, a buddy of mine and I uh, from Colorado Springs, in fact. He and I both uh, were near the top of our class in, MBA, in our MBA program, and we both went to Ford, and we both became very, very bored right away. Now, the difference is he became sort of disenfranchised with that boredom, and he quit in 13 months and went and worked for a you know high-powered consulting firm. Then he jumped into st the staffing company where I joined him later. I wasn't disenfranchised as much, but I found myself trying to start businesses on the side in the evenings and weekends. And so, oh, you just caught me. Maybe that was my marriage problem. <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I really didn't have very many hobbies and I, I was trying to start this and trying to start that. I actually got into property tax consulting way back when, you know, in like 1989. And anyway, um, eventually I joined him in a company he had started uh, four years later, uh, I left Ford and joined him, and that was a great move for me. But I never disliked or hated Ford, and I think I could have been okay staying there, I, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. So so what were your, from, from that program, it sounds like you were in a high-performance program. In a corporate environment, what were your, what were your takeaways from there that you took away and, and continue to use, or at least you used uh, later? Mm. Well, um, I realized that a lot of the people with the easiest jobs, I mean, people who had been semi-automated out of their job, who were in their, let's say their 60s, they were the most miserable, unhappy people because they had very little work to do. And Ford was kind enough to keep them on. And they were paid probably better than the average employee. And they were just miserable and they hated the work, they hated their life. And so I realized I didn't want to be that way. And I won't say I didn't want to work for the man, but there was some element of that. I realized, you know, they could transfer me anywhere they wanted. There were eight locations around the country outside of Detroit that I was very likely going to be transferred to. And I didn't really want to put my kids and family through that. I saw some of the difficulties my wife had making one or two moves uh, early in our marriage. And I thought, I don't want to jerk her around for the next 40 years around these different major cities. So that was a good move for me to get out. So you got out and then started your own company with, with your partner, which, uh, right. which has its own set of uh, benefits and challenges. What were your big takeaway, takeaways during that part of your journey? 
during starting my own company. Yeah, your own company and nominated for Entrepreneur of the Year and some other things related to that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that one big takeaway was, you know, I, I had this saying, you know, entrepreneurs uh, have a great life. We can choose any 80 hours a week we want to work. And or we can, you know, we only work, we, we get to work any 12 hour days we want or something like that. Yeah. And I didn't really slow down. And I didn't realize till I got in a coaching program with strategic coach Dan Sullivan, a long time later, that I really needed a lot more balance. I needed to be full on off certain days and full on at work other days. And I tried to mix them. And you know, it was sort of like Neapolitan ice cream left out on the counter overnight. It looks really good and you, you can really enjoy each one of those three flavors if you take it out of the freezer. But if you leave it out overnight, it's just gonna be a big brown mess. And that's sort of what my life was like as an entrepreneur in the early years. Yeah, so it, it it doesn't shut off. I I heard somebody joke recently. You know, they gave up a nine to five and and got a five to nine, uh, <laughs> which is kind of what you were saying. And and you're correct. It does strain. You know, it sounds like you had children at the time and y'all were growing your family yeah. and a lot going on. But you were very successful at it. Tell just briefly. I mean, when someone says they were nominated for something like the Entrepreneur of the Year, tell us just briefly about that. And uh, did it have the value that we think it has? I mean, to me, it's impressive. It definitely has had value in having it on my resume over the years. Uh, the problem when it happened was. I was afraid of being unmasked. I was afraid that people would realize I was a fraud because I knew my own weaknesses. I was only like 31 and 32, I think, yeah, 32 and 33, the two years I got nominated. And I thought, oh, if they only knew, I'm worried they're gonna walk into my office and see that we're just a little tiny company with you know six employees. And yes, we're doing really well, but I think they're gonna, you know, I feel like a fraud. And I didn't know till many, many years later that almost every successful person on the planet feels that way. And so that was really interesting. And so if anybody's listening and you feel like you're afraid, you're gonna be unmasked as a fraud, as far as being a husband or a father or a pastor or a business person, realize you are not alone. Mm, that's good. So, and that's one of the reasons we started our podcast, How to Lose Money, because we want to tell the story of these mega successful people who had terrible pain and struggle along the way and let people know there's hope. You know what's interesting about that, Paul? I think you and I are somewhat from a similar generation. I think, in fact, we're very close to the same age. And for some reason, coming up 70s, 80s, kind of formative years, <laughs> For me, there was this little bit of, I don't want anyone to see me bleed. I don't want anyone to see me weak. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is that, I mean, because I, I was very similar sure. to what you're talking about. Yeah, I, well, you and I are the exact same age, but my father was actually World War II. And uh, I think that there's a really strong ethic in what they call the greatest generation that they did not talk about their weaknesses. They didn't talk about their salary. Uh, they didn't talk about all kinds of things that we would think are fairly normal to talk about now. Yeah, I, I actually do see, though, that people, some in our age group, we'll call it, still struggle with it. And the generations behind us 
to me, that's what often causes the conflict because they are okay sharing any of that. Would you agree? Oh yeah. Right. And it just, yeah, they share all, it seems that they share all kinds of things that, yeah. that we wouldn't even share. I don't think. Sure. Speaking of that, one of the things that I have been very open about, and you actually have a podcast, How to Lose Money, so you, I'm guessing, are okay speaking about this. Anytime someone is in business or real estate, we're about to talk about some of your experience there, there are struggles involved. And like you said, sometimes we don't want people to see those, but what can you share? What are some things that you've been through that, uh, you know, whatever depth you want to go into, just I'm going to leave it open to you. Oh, there's so many. I mean, um, you know, like the the pain we had in our marriage, uh, the pain that I had being a serial entrepreneur. You know, I wanted to put serial entrepreneur on my business card at one time. Kind of going back to what I said earlier, you know, that was, you know, somebody who's starting a company who's always in startup mode is like, you know, the jet plane, you know, a jet has... I have no idea how many horsepower the engines on a jet have, but let's say it's 800. I don't know. But they use like most of that whole 800 to get from the ground into the air and up to 30,000 square, 30,000 feet above sea level. And then they hit on cruising altitude. They, you know, they're at cruising altitude and they might only use 100 horsepower to cruise from New York to LA. Well, if you're constantly revving those motors, you know, going at 800, using all 800 horsepower, you're never going to get to cruising altitude. And so you're always in stressed, sort of emergency, sort of frantic mode, not really, you know, learning as you go and losing a lot of money, time and sleep along the way. And so yeah, I have so many stories, so many painful stories of startups, some I've literally even forgotten now, and every now and then I'll remember, oh yeah, I remember I started a coffee business in college and I had a gross revenues of 50 cents in six months. And so that, that's a real story. And that was at the Ohio State University. You sure that, that sounds like a ministry? You sure you weren't, weren't just giving away coffee? <laughs> I think that's what it was, yeah. Or, or you're it's a good to thing people. we did Selling seven-year-old co instant coffee was not the best idea, I don't think. But anyway, maybe it was maybe it was healthy. I you, don't know. You were in the coffee business, but maybe it was a timing issue. You were in the coffee business before the coffee business was cool. I know it was like five years before it got really cool. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. Anyway, we we may talk about that as we get into real estate here. There's something I I went. I, I, I will do some snooping around when I'm doing some research on guests. And there's something that jumped out at me called the Gateway Intercultural Services on your LinkedIn profile. And I was just curious what that is because it was very intriguing to me. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, when we sold uh, my company in, uh, in Detroit in 1997, I was still 33 years old and we moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia when I was, uh, I think about 34 and um, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something to make an impact on the earth. And so uh, we began to um, look for opportunities to serve and we started a nonprofit organization. We actually bought 120 acres on the top of the of Blue Ridge Mountain and we uh, set up five or six homes along the perimeter 
of the 120 acres. And we started an international student ministry and it was called Gateway Ministries. And uh, we changed the name later to the other one. But um, our goal was, you know, did you know that like 90% of international students coming to the U.S. don't, uh, that one of their main goals in coming to the U.S. is to be enculturated into the U.S., learn our culture, learn our customs, learn about families, get to know people deeply. And like 90% of them go back after an average of five and a half years without ever setting foot in an American's home. And we thought that was a tragedy. And so we wanted to open our homes and we actually gave students a chance to, uh, you know, ride a horse and milk a goat or vice versa. And uh, that was a joke. But, um, you know, and, and, you know, get to get to go uh, horseback riding and trail walk on trails and just get a chance to look at the stars at night and all kinds of fun things they don't usually get to do on campus. And so we did that for a while. And my entrepreneurial instinct wanted to do a weekly retreat, like 50 a year. And the folks that were volunteering with me had completely different ideas. They wanted to do about two a year. And so what was I going to do the other 48 or 50 weeks a year? So that didn't last a whole long time, but I kept the nonprofit status. So we do, we fund mission trips and orphans and all kinds of things through there. We're really passionate about funding uh, thwarting human trafficking and rescuing its victims. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's, that's really cool. And I, I think, and I know, I believe you have similar that part of the reason that we are able to create some of our wealth is to turn around and do things like that. Yeah. So were you, yeah, absolutely. So did I want to, I want to just clarify this. So at 34, you had an exit from a business. Would mm-hmm. that, were, were you considered retired then? Were you financially in a position where you were flexible? And because I was going to ask about the mindset that you might have had when you were at that young age and being positioned to where yeah. possibly didn't have to work. What'd that do for your mental state? Yeah, it, it was horrible. I actually thought I'm going to become the best father, the best husband, uh, the best friend. And I think I became the worst version of myself because I was bored and I actually realized, you know, and I, I literally, I'll tell anybody who wants to know, I don't recommend retirement. And there's lots of statistical health reasons for that. But uh, I think I was in sort of a semi-retirement mode and I found myself trying to look like I was really busy. And um, yeah, it was just not really a great time for me. And so I'm glad that after only a couple of years, oh, a couple of years, uh, I finally got into real estate investing. And that was when I really started having a lot of fun again. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I also was a speculator and I thought I was an investor. I would say I'm an investor now. But the truth is I was a speculator. You know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return, Tim. But speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And entrepreneurs turned investors are especially dangerous because entrepreneurs are always on the cutting edge. They're doing something uncertain, new, pushing the horizons. Great investors are sort of boring. You know, Paul Samuelson's the first Nobel Peace Prize winner 
uh, from the U.S. in economics, and he said, investing should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. And I wanted excitement out of my investing, and it cost me dearly. I made a lot of money, but I lost a lot of money as well, and I learned the difference, and I learned to invest over these uh, you know, 19 years since then, and that's been a really good path for me. Yeah, when you were describing speculating, I was sitting here going, that sounds like gambling, which you then made the analogy that is very close to it. So, so 2000-ish, you started doing some things in real estate. Why? Why, why real estate? What appealed to you about real estate at that time? The, the, the uh, starting point was actually not too glamorous, actually. My friend moved from Charlotte, North Carolina. Like I said, we had a lot of friends who lived in the same area and uh, out in the mountains. And um, he had, uh, I don't know, 15-year background doing maintenance at apartments. And so I said, well, hey, I just heard this rumor you can get houses on the courthouse steps in foreclosure for pennies on the dollar or at least less than 50 cents on the dollar. And why don't we go try that? And so we tried it on a December day and we got bit by the real estate bug and neither one of us have ever gone back. <laughs> that was one of my early entrances into real estate too, is going down to the courthouse steps. And that's, yeah. that's an inter interesting uh, culture that goes down to the courthouse steps, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Unique group of people, and uh, and you have to be careful. You can uh, you could get bitten in that environment too. So you started in two thousand and eight, right. and and in just a little while, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit all sectors of real estate, and I'm gonna get your pros, cons, and all on it. But from two thousand, I started in two thousand actually. Okay, two thousand. All right. For, so from two thousand to two thousand and eight, I want to kind of set. A, a little bit of a time frame here because there's something that occurred in 2008 that impacted a lot of people in the real estate really? in industry. Yeah. I, I know we've kind of pushed it out of our mind, but we're, we're going to kind of revive it a little bit. What were you doing from 2000 to 2008? And then I'm going to ask you, how did 08 impact you? Mm, how much time do you have? No, I'm seriously. Yeah, I, uh, well. So we started flipping houses. We flipped dozens of houses. And I finally went to my business partner and very close friend to this day and said, hey, if we can make this much money flipping houses, why don't we build some? And so we started building modular homes from the ground up at a, at a lake called Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. It's sort of like Lake Tahoe, but it's not. And it's, uh, it's in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And then we, I said, well, maybe we can do stick belt. So I actually uh, started doing stick belt. I did two stick belt houses. And you know, Tim, uh, I found out that somebody who doesn't know how to tighten the doorknob on their own home should probably not be in construction. And um, I'll just leave it at that. It was painful. Uh, had at one house in particular, I should have made 100,000 profit on easily. And uh, we lost 40,000 on it instead. And so that's when... I got a call around that exact same month, though, from a guy, and he said, hey, um, my name's Dave, and I, am, I run Freddie Mac, uh, and he said, don't hang up, I'm serious. He said, I'm the senior VP at Freddie Mac, and he said, I, um, 
I noticed you're a realtor and I see that you do construction too, but your website's really nice. And I called seven realtors at Smith Mountain Lake. This was doing a huge boom in like, oh, five, I think. Um, and he said, I've, I, I, uh, I've, I've not got a call back from any realtor. Would you help me? And so I helped him and I put my normal entrepreneurial customer service driven hat on and I really went to work hard for him. I don't think I even grasped who he was. Hmm. I was like, Freddie Mac, yeah, I heard of that, you know. But anyway, um, I helped him and I, he, he found a beautiful home and he was very complimentary. And I realized, huh, I just made like $16,000 commission and I had a realtor license. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier that just went along with my construction business. It was just for kicks sort of, but I had to disclose that on my website. He happened to find it. Um, anyway, um, I thought, hey, I just made 15,000 in like 20 hours, easy, fun work. And I just lost 40,000 on like a year's work on this other thing and took all this risk and headache and bought a bought a, a contractor, a bulldozer and he kept it. Can you believe that? Anyway, um, seriously. And, and he was so complimentary. I thought, well, maybe I should start a real estate company. So we jumped right on the Google AdWords bandwagon, right when Google AdWords and Bing and all I was before Bing, I guess, but was all that stuff was heating up. And we rode that and we made a lot of money, had a lot of fun till 2008. In fact, during that time, we also started another partnership to flip high-end waterfront lots. So we would buy lots, let's say they were acquired in the 80s for 50,000. Now they're worth, let's say 300, completely overgrown. The people lived in Vermont or somewhere and they hadn't seen it in 10 years. And so we'd buy the lot, we would mow all, you know, cut it all, we would beautify it. We would do beautiful, wonderful marketing on it. And we would sell it for like a hundred thousand dollar profit. I mean, just the six months between acquisition and the sale of the lot alone, we'd make a huge profit because the price increases were so steep. And you know, we, we saw a, a magazine headline that said the real estate bubble is about to burst. And you know, I wanted to ignore that. I really wanted to believe that wasn't the case, but we had a whole bunch of waterfront lots when um, 2007, there was a lot of cracks in the ice. Uh, the uh, sale of waterfront lots ground almost to a halt. And I found myself where I exactly 10 years before I had a million and a half in the bank. And now I had two and a half million in debt. And um, a whole bunch of waterfront lots, a waterfront home. And um, I was... Uh, facing 2008. Now remember, Tim, try to remember what it felt like in late 07. We did not know what was coming. It's easy to look back and say, oh, you must have been terrified. I thought the worst was over. At least I wanted to believe that. And so my partner came to me in, let's say, November of 07 and said, uh, I can't make half of these interest payments anymore. So January 1st, I'm going to sign all the waterfront lots over to you and you can have all the debt as well. Congratulations. Well, said, Congratulations. Yeah, congrats. And that was one of the best things that ever happened to me, as I'll tell you in a minute. And I told him, I said, we're going to find a way out of this. You watch. He said, no, nah, I just can't wait. And so we're still really good friends. He still works in my company, in fact. But um, anyway, he's, he did that. And one, one day I was meditating. And I was sitting in my chair, you, you know, uh, and I was 
asking, and I, I had this really distinct impression, WWGMD. That doesn't mean what would grandma do. That means what would George Mueller do? Now, a lot of young people, I lectured at Liberty University recently in Lynchburg, Virginia, and I asked them, you know, what they knew about George Mueller. And in a large finance class, not one person except my daughter knew who George Mueller was. Shocking. So for those of you who don't know, George Mueller was a hellion in Germany in the early 1800s. He became a Christian and I would say a saint in, uh, and moved to England in the early 1800s. And he decided he was going to show the world that you could really trust God and that you could rely on no one but him. So he started orphanages and he started caring for orphans in Bristol, England. And uh, over the course of the most of the next century, he cared for a total of 10,000 uh, orphans. And though nobody seems to agree on this, it, it seems like he raised almost uh, between quarter and a half a billion dollars all without ever one time asking for money or making his needs known. He and, and anybody who wants to read about George, it's a great story. So I thought, oh, by the way, he was very opinionated and he hated debt. He hated marketing, two things I seem to love. And so um, I thought, well, you know, if, what would George do? Well, he wouldn't be in debt, so I'm already in trouble. But I thought if he was, what would he do? And so around that time, two friends met with me at a restaurant and said, one was the husband of my CPA, and they said, so uh, what are you going to do? You're going to declare bankruptcy? It looks like you're pretty much have to, right? And I said, no, we're going to give our way out of debt. <laughs> and that went over really well, yeah, just like C that CPAs drop love, here. CPAs love hearing that. That makes so much practical sense, yeah. right? Yeah, it sure does. And so then I went home and told my family, you know, four fairly young kids and my wife. And my wife was on board with it because she realized our backs were against the wall. There's nothing else we could do. So uh, starting January 1st, 2008, we began to give aggressively every week. We began to give to our church, nonprofits, ministries, things we cared about. And four weeks later, I was in another restaurant and I was talking to a real estate developer about my terrible situation and about the all the waterfront lots I had, including this five plus acre parcel, I wanted to divide into five beautiful waterfront lots, but I couldn't because of zoning. And he goes, well, you ought to try this. And I said, yeah, I, I tried that, that certain strategy. He said, well, give it a thought. And right then this massive boom light bulb moment went off for me. And all of a sudden the entire plan uh, emerged in like a less than a second in my brain. And so two days later, my surveyor with his head in his hands and, um, and I were meeting with the county planning and zoning administrator and laying out this crazy plan I had to use their law that would not allow me to subdivide. Uh, I was basically using a twist on that law to actually allow me to subdivide the land. And the lady looked up over her glasses after a few minutes of me explaining this and she just shook her head and she had a slight smile and she was trying to act mad and she said i don't know how you've done this but in 30 or whatever years here i've never seen anybody take our law and twist it like you have and turn it into an opportunity to subdivide and develop this land but she said you're right 
the law has a loophole in it and nobody's ever found it. And so there was a lot of work left ahead, Tim. There was meetings with lawyers and surveyors and perk test people, soil test people, uh, realtors and bankers and all kinds of things. But 13 months later, we went from two and a half million dollars in debt to 100% debt free right in the heart of 2008. Wow, that's that's phenomenal. Now, here's a, you know, we don't shy away here on on some of the deeper spiritual questions. People that are typically wired the way you are, we are, Paul, entrepreneurs, even engineers, people that can get things done. Many times when we get into trouble, we believe that we also can get ourselves out of trouble. It sounds like to me that you were at the place where you probably couldn't get, if I'm putting words in your mouth, you correct me, that you Mm -hmm. probably couldn't get out on your own power and you had to, I'll say, call in the big guns. Uh, It's, you know, at, at what level did you realize I can't fix this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was, you know, in the fall of 2007. And again, we didn't know how bad things were going to get. But, you know, I realized, you know, lots weren't selling. I could even drop the price down to near our cost. And I couldn't sell these lots. But, you know, I don't believe God is a big vending machine in the sky. I can just put in, you know, a tithe and come out with a, you know, a million dollars or whatever. But at least this time, um, I, I think God did reward uh, us stepping out in this crazy uh, faith. I don't believe that God would have had to do that. I don't believe it always will happen that way, but it did that time. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. So you go through this process and obviously there's a lot of learning points and things like that from it. What, what was your big takeaway? What was your big takeaway from that? You know, I think that, you know, God is faithful. And I think, you know, I, I didn't tell you some of the elements of the story. One other piece of it was I went to church that morning. That was a Sunday morning. And I was thinking about George Mueller a lot. And that morning, I don't remember the pastor ever talking about George Mueller before or since that day, but he spoke about George Mueller that very morning, which I think God drove the point home for me. I I just think, you know, stepping out in faith, if when you have a real clear word from the Lord like that is, you know, at least in that situation was very clear and it was rewarded. I will say as a caveat to this, that uh, years later, uh, I didn't have a real clear word from the Lord, and I started giving aggressively again. Actually, we continued to give at that same exact level for over 10 years, and then we tried to up it. And, um, you know, honestly, things did not turn around overnight like that. And so, I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. Well, maybe it's that uh, there's something bigger at play, and and we do the best we can with it and go from there. So yeah. this there's things that have spun off. Uh, you, you've got, I just want to mention to everyone here, you've got, I, I think I counted up 74 articles on Bigger Pockets. Excellent. I went and studied a good bit of mm-hmm. them. I highly recommend it. We'll probably put a link to those in our in the notes. 
And then you also have your How to Lose Money podcast. My guess is that this was somewhat the catalyst for the beginning of that podcast. Um, I think the catalyst was I used to go to these father-daughter retreats, and I have seven years in a row, this one, my oldest daughter, who's at Bethel now, uh, and I went to this father-daughter retreat, and we would hear these fathers from the stage trumpeting their amazing families and their amazing values and their amazing adventures. And I would look around the table. There was these 10 father and daughters sitting around the table where I was and we, you know, every year. And they, I would see their shoulders just drooping and I'd see the kids looking kind of down. And my daughter admitted to me after many years, she said, I gotta be honest. She goes, I love our family, but I really kind of feel jealous. I'd like to be part of one of those families. Well, we got to know one of those families and you know what? They were great. They really were. But you know what? They had the same problems we did. The daughters fought at home and the parents didn't get along perfectly and they had similar struggles to us. And when I heard that, I was actually really encouraged and I thought, huh, I think people would be more encouraged to hear about pain and failure on the road to success than just somebody trumpeting all their success. And I saw the same thing at real estate conferences and other business situations, even going back to my entrepreneur of the year finalist thing. You know, I knew that I had these huge weaknesses in my company, but you know, publicly it looked really good. Well, I was more encouraged when I found out people had pain and failure on the road to success. So that's where it got started. Yeah, and it's a great podcast. I recommend those that are listening in, go check that out. It's in my subscribes, and I listen to it. All right, I'm going to shift a little bit here, and I I don't know that we'll – I don't even know if this is picking up the pace, but I'll call this a little bit of rapid fire. I've got a list of different segments, areas of real estate, and what I really want to do – Paul, I mean, we're, we've got an audience, like I said, some people that are probably deep into the real estate arena, some people that, you know, just barely scraping the surface of it. I want to mention some things to you, and I want you to just real quickly, top of your head, give some advantages, disadvantages, pros, cons, and just off the top, off the cuff here. And I know, I know with the depth of your background, with all that I've read, all your, all that you've gotten written on this, that this is going to be pretty fun. So I'm going to start off, just say, I'm just going to say something, single family homes, pros, cons, advantages, disadvantages to someone investing or getting involved with real estate. Yeah, it's a great front door for a lot of people who want to do flips or build a single family portfolio. I'll tell you, a lot of people who build portfolios realize they're working harder than they need to, to make less than they could. I met a nuclear engineer from Virginia the other day for lunch, and he said, you know, he's built 26 doors up. That's pretty impressive. He can probably, he was thinking he could probably replace his income. And he realized that the appreciation hadn't been anywhere near what he had hoped. But worse than that, when he really drilled down and got his average ROI on these, he was only making 2 to 3% a year from rents once he you know, paid all his expenses and everything. And he was working harder than he needed to, to make way less than he could. I was talking to a dentist in the Pacific Northwest. He was actually an oral surgeon. He said, I'm building a 20-home portfolio to replace my income eventually. And then he started musing on, well, yeah, 
I'm on the phone with painters between surgeries and I'm screening tenants in the evening. Honestly, it's driving me crazy. And then he admitted something. He said, I was building a 20 home portfolio. I'm only on house number three and it's driving me nuts. I'm not sure that I'd want and that. So, not sure I'd want that guy doing surgery on me if he's uh, haggling with yeah. contractors in between. Yeah, right, right, right. So at any rate, I think that there are very significant limits to scalability. Although there are a few companies who have done really well with it, the average person out there is going to have a real struggle building wealth with single family homes. Okay, two subcategories underneath single family homes, flipping, which is kind of a an exit strategy or holding for rental. You mentioned a little bit of the hold strategy, but mm -hmm. advantages, disadvantages to those two. Flipping can be a great way to make short-term money. Uh, it's more of an income play rather than a wealth building play. Of course, you can invest that money, but I haven't met one person who invests well, who flips. They usually are just taking the money and throwing it into the next deal or living off of it. Uh, or trading futures on the side, but I won't get into that. Um, I don't do that, but I, I do know somebody who does that. And um, it's um, honestly, it seems like it's not a great way to build wealth. It's a, it's an okay way. Um, it's uh, right now the real estate business, as we sit here in the winter and spring of 2020, um, is uh, at such a fever pitch. All in all sectors it's hard to find even a single family home to flip that makes financial sense. And my friends who buy them and flip them or put them in their rental portfolio say it's extremely hard, even in small towns now. All right. You mentioned this earlier, waterfront lots, or let's call it luxury type real estate. I lived in a lake and golf community also. So pros and cons, advantages, disadvantages. I think it's somewhat speculative. You know, we rode way we rode those way up in 2004 to 2007. Really enjoyed that, but I had a waterfront lot that I didn't mention that I actually held until 2019 that I had acquired in 2006, and paying the country club dues and all the fees and all the taxes and everything else for those many years. It was, I, I don't even want to tell you how much money we lost. And honestly, that country club community, that waterfront country club was an incredible favor in the early 2000s. Well, it fell that much out of favor later. And so this very mediocre lot um, that I had hundreds of thousands of dollars in sold for pennies on the dollar uh, I'll say this, around 25% of what I had in it. Wow. Uh, finally, I just fire sailed it last year. Wow. Okay. So, so that's just one example. But overall, I think it's somewhat speculative. Yeah. How about um, you mentioned new home construction earlier and also subdivision development. I know it's on your resume. So those are somewhat related, but a little different pros and cons, advantages, disadvantages to those two? It's, you know, a lot of the wealthiest people in the world are people who developed real estate, but a lot of them are also delivering pizzas for Domino's right now. And so the situation is, again, I think it's somewhat speculative in nature. And we hear of people, you know, Sam Zell is the wealthiest and most successful real estate mogul in America. Um, and there was an article about him today, at least included him today in the Wall Street Journal. And he's done incredibly well, and he will not do ground up development. He says it's way too risky for him. He's got 
all the resources in the world to do that, and he won't do it. Yeah, so, we, yeah, I think it's somewhat risky. It's great for a few people, but not great for the majority of people. Yeah, we were about to begin a development of a small subdivision in 0708, and the funding just kept getting slower, slower. And I am so thankful yeah. that we were not in that position. All right, let's jump just a little bit, and this is a little bit broad. There's a few underneath it that I'm going to drill down a little bit more, but let's just look at, in in general, commercial property, advantages, disadvantages. All right, so commercial real estate's entirely different from residential. Residential real estate's based on comps, and you may be Joe uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, Jr., and you may be able to take a $300,000 house, add a half million dollars in improvements, and have an $800,000 house. I'm not saying they do that, but let's say you're really talented at it. You're not gonna get 800,000 for that house if it's in a $350,000 neighborhood. But in commercial real estate, it's entirely different. The uh, value is not based on comparable properties. It's based on something we love called math. The math goes like this. The value of the property equals the income divided by the rate of return. And that's true in other worlds as well. But it's specifically the net operating income divided by the cap rate or the capitalization rate. And so if you can drive up the net operating income and if some way you can possibly compress the cap rate and there are ways to do that they're not all guaranteed to work then you can significantly increase the value of the asset and if you can use safe leverage you can even multiply that increase times two or three um, to the value of the equity and so it's such an incredibly powerful tool and i'll tell you tim we could talk for the next couple hours about this I will tell you that the wealthiest people in the world, most of the Forbes 400 own commercial real estate. And I think that's one of the reasons why. Sure. A couple of categories that are, well, maybe not underneath that, but I'm just going to do a couple here that are men they're mentioned in your some of the articles you do. Mobile homes, not really commercial, but mobile homes. Talk to us briefly about that. I'm going to circle back to commercial in just a moment. So, so mm -hmm. advantages, disadvantages. Yeah, I mean, these are all these are all types of commercial real estate. Yep. Uh, I think mobile homes are one of the very worst possible things that somebody can invest in. I think mobile home parks are one of the very best things someone could ever invest in. Uh, I won't get into the mobile homes unless you want to, but mobile home parks. The, um, it's the only asset type that I know of that has a shrinking supply and an increasing demand every year. They're truly not making any more of them and they're actually shrinking in uh, the number of them annually. Uh, there is, according to the today's Wall Street Journal article about this, uh, it's the only asset type they were talking about while lots of things are going up and down, uh, mobile home parks, a couple different uh, groups, including Sun Communities and Sam Zell's company, have had uh, increases of 4,000 and 1,200% respectively uh, since 2000, I believe it was 10, so about 10 years. Um, it's, uh, it's, they're very sticky. Uh, they're the bottom of the housing rung. So if people are downsized in a recession out of a big home to a small or a small home to an apartment or a home or an apartment to a mobile home, that's the last rung. Below that, they're on the street, you know, or they're, you know, living under a bridge. And so it is a very recession-resistant asset class. Uh, the uh, tenants typically don't leave. A tenant paying three or $400 a month in lot rent 
is typically not going to be in a position to move their single or double wide down the street and spend five or $8,000 to do that just to save $30 on lot rent. And so it is a very stable asset class. Sam Zell has 156,000 mobile home sites um, in, uh, in, in the US and Warren Buffett is deeply into mobile homes in the form of Clayton Homes, Bercadia Mortgage, 21st Mortgage, and more. Interesting. All right, next one, self-storage units. Self-storage is a really recession-resistant asset class. Uh, did very well during the last recession as well. Not as well as mobile homes, parks that is. But um, self-storage is very sticky because if I'm renting you a $1,000 a month apartment and I raise your rent by 6%, you're signing up with a stroke of a pen for another $720 a year or 60 a month. But if I'm renting you, and you may move rather than pay that, but if I'm renting you a $100 storage unit and I raise your rent by 6%, you're probably thinking, oh, six bucks extra a month, it's not worth getting a U-Haul, getting my friends together, moving all my junk, I mean treasures down the street on a hot summer day or in the middle of winter just to save six bucks a month. Besides, I'm gonna go take that stuff out and put it on eBay in the next few weeks anyway. And of course, that few weeks usually turns into months or years. So these tenants are very sticky. The problem with self-storage is unless you buy uh, right, unless you buy the right location, if we had a lot more time, we could talk about all that, um, you could end up buying a, an, an asset in an overbuilt market. And so self-storage, unlike mobile homes um, in the last decade, the building pace has been far, far greater than most asset classes. So it's made it really challenging and really important to invest in the right types of deals. Yeah, and uh, and obviously as Americans, and you know we're American based here, we're accumulating so much stuff. It is just creating yeah. such a massive yeah. need there. But that need is being met. Um, advantages. If you look at the pictures from the Depression, people were leaving beds and nightstands and dressers along the side of the road as they relocated. But you didn't see that in this last Great Recession because people for a very small percentage of their income could store their stuff. Right. Advantages, disadvantages of reality TV. You were on House Hunters. So what are the advantages, disadvantages real quickly? Well, I think it's made real estate specifically popular uh, for the masses to want to get involved. I mean, lots and lots of people think, and they probably are right in many cases, that they could do this. And so uh, the disadvantage for real estate investors, of course, is there's a lot more competition on the courthouse steps or for those HUD homes, uh, you know, that are foreclosed. And so um, it's made it a little bit tough. And I think it's uh, made it really hard to find great deals and make a living at this at the moment. But that'll change. Sure. One thing now I want to apologize for, you wrote a book, Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing, and I almost always will read the book of whoever I'm interviewing. I was wow. not able to read this book. All I had the time to do was to go read the Amazon reviews, and they are mm. off the charts. <laughs> Phenomenal. Wow. So, so we're going to put a link 
to that book, but I guess that leads to the one of the last areas I want to ask you about, multifamily housing. Advantages, disadvantages. Obviously, you have expertise because you've written the book. I called uh, multifamily housing the perfect investment, and there are so many good reasons. There are demographic trends that are looking ahead for decades with millennials, boomers, uh, Gen Z, um, immigrants. Those are four big areas where renting is becoming more popular than buying in many cases. The problem is the perfect investment is no longer perfect if it is so attractive that uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of investors have um, you know, chased these deals. And so there's a massive amount of capital chasing a very few deals for sale. Um, and so prices are high. And um, honestly, there is a lot of speculation going on. And I think a lot of people are going to get burned. I would say more than any asset that we've talked about in the last 15 minutes, it's the one I would be most wary of investing in where we sit in the spring of 2020. It was already really bad. But when December of 2017 rolled around and uh, the president and Congress signed into law the new Tax and Jobs Act, uh, it made real estate investing as a whole and multifamily specifically far more attractive. And it re-injected another round of life into this speculative boom, as I call it. And so I think it's a very difficult place to invest right now. And that's one of the reasons I've written a new book about self-storage investing, and we're tentatively titling it The Perfecter Investment. The gooder, the gooder, more perfecter. That's the one. That's good words there. All right, last one before I ask you a few wrap-up questions here. Investment funds. It seems as if funds are becoming more popular. I don't know if it's just my perspective, but advantages, disadvantages. This is going to lead into a conversation about Wellings Capital, what you guys are doing. So tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that. Educate us on what those are. So funds have a couple distinct disadvantages. Number one, they can be blind pools. And so people don't know what they're investing in. Uh, number two, they have an additional layer of fees. So people are not getting the full return they would with one operator. And those were two major concerns I had. Uh, and for years, I drug my heels wanting to even do a fund. Now, what I found was that it's possible to define those things so well in your operating agreement and prospectus up front that investors really don't have to go into it blindly. Um, and number two, I found that as a very large investor, uh, we can go into these operators and we can negotiate a much better deal than an individual investor could get. And that better deal, when we pass that along as a fund manager to the investor, which we do, uh, it can offset and sometimes more than offset our fees. And so the advantage to the investor now becomes, you know, they don't lose any money in fees. They can trust what we're investing in. And now they know that they've got a, a professional team vetting the operators very carefully, vetting the deals, keeping track of everything and managing this so they can stay focused on their dental practice or being a nuclear engineer or whatever, and they don't have to worry about all this. In addition to that, they get wonderful diversification, and that's diversification in six different ways across uh, asset types, across operators, across geographies, across assets, 
And then two kind of funny things across strategy and time. And what I mean by that is strategy, we invest with uh, mobile home park and self-storage operators that actually have different types of strategies. And so we're allowing people to diversify across that. Some might be, you know, a ground up development. Other people might be value add. Some might hold for three years, some might hold for 10 or more. And so that's part of the strategy. The time one's really hard to get your brain around. And that means we're actually investing. Wellings Income Fund 2 is taking off uh, right now as we're recording this. And we're investing in assets that have already been acquired and largely partially de-risked, which means they've already, the hard work's already been done, the heavy lifting's been done. We're investing in a portfolio, which means, let's say of the, let's say 25 assets in the portfolio, 15 might have been bought a year ago, and we're investing now when the hard work's already been done. And a lot of the risk has been taken out of it, which provides a wonderful uh, safety net for investors. Yeah, that's that's good. One one thing that I, I guess I want to ask, I mean, there may be a listener that's kind of curious and said, you know, which I, I would agree with him. This guy knows what he's talking about. I might want to work with him. What type of investor or client are you looking for? Just basic criteria. And then I've got one more question before we kind of wrap up here and finish up our podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it would be a couple different types. Um, one would be the professional who's in their high income earning years. They realize they want the tax breaks and the wealth building potential of real estate, but they either through trial and error or through just understanding how the world works, realize that they can't really do a great job in their IT or medical or whatever job and do real estate on the side and really do it well. A second group would be people who are already in real estate and they're doing single family or flips or whatever and they realize they're working harder than they need to to make less than they could and they want to go passive. Some of them are you know, in the retirement years and they wanna trade in their single family portfolio for a passive investment where they can make the same or more money without dealing with the toilets, tenants, and trash themselves. A third group are people who have high income and they're trying to shield taxes and they're trying to, you know, get, um, they're trying to get tax breaks. And uh, so those are three groups of people. These would be accredited investors. And if you're accredited, you probably know what that means. Um, and uh, as a listener, you would, you know, you would know, or you could look that up. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, our minimum investment size is $50,000. Okay, very good. Last question, and then we'll kind of let people know how they can get in touch with you and, I'd like for you to say just a real quick sentence or two to two groups, tips or share your wisdom. We'll just kind of put a exclamation point on the podcast. Someone who knows nothing about real estate, if they've listened to us to this point, that they may not even fit that category, or someone who thinks they know everything about real estate. Um, just a quick sentence or two as we wrap up here to those two groups. I would say the something very similar to both, and that is um, you don't have to know a whole lot about all the nuts and bolts of real estate. That would be to the first group. And to the second, I would say you can know a whole lot about the nuts and bolts, but you can still enjoy either one, either group can enjoy wonderful returns and great tax shields by trusting 
someone to invest passively with. And that's exactly what we do. We used to be operators. We used to have multifamily. We used to run these things ourselves. And now we realize that we're better serving ourselves and my particular gift mix and my team's mix by being uh, by finding great operators who have a great world-class team and we're investing with them. And other people can do that too. You don't have to know all the details about real estate to know if you can trust somebody and you can evaluate their track records. So find somebody you can trust, evaluate them very, very thoroughly, and then trust them to invest your money rather than trying to do it on the side. You'll be way ahead. Yeah, that's good. You mentioned, I think you said you had an ebook and maybe an e-course for people, some resources. How can people get that? We'll include a link also, but how can people get that? Yeah, so I've got a book on, uh, it's an e-course, which is a five-day course in learning the nuts and bolts of commercial real estate, just enough to learn whether you want to be involved or not. And I've got an e-book on mobile home park investing and another one on self-storage investing. And people can get those by going to my website, which is wellingscapital.com. And um, if you put forward slash resources, you can give us your first name and email address and we'll email all that to you. Perfect. Yeah, we'll include that in the in the links also. And we'll also let people know how they can get in touch with you, the Wellings Capital, and probably put a link to your Bigger Pockets articles. I enjoyed those a great deal. Paul, this has been so much fun. What's next for you? What's next for Paul? You know, I'm really looking forward to the day when we can make a meaningful impact on fighting human trafficking and rescuing its victims. You know, I found out a few years ago, if you took the record profits, not the average, the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, added those together, doubled that total, you would have the approximate annual revenues generated by human trafficking every year. It's a staggering problem. And I'd like to believe if I was alive in the 1800s, I would be an abolitionist fighting against slavery. And if I was alive in the night, if I was an adult in the 1960s, I would have been uh, fighting for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. It is slavery and it's happening right under our noses. And so I want to raise awareness and encourage people to get involved. And I want to do something about it. I'm looking forward to working with some friends to build a, um, a billion dollar office tower in Dallas. Uh, it's called the Freedom Place Project. You can learn more by going to freedomplaceproject.com. And um, the uh, Freedom Place, the tower will basically be a regular office building uh, put together by a development team. And all of the revenues paid to architects and land and construction will be all normal like any other deal, but all the profits to the developer 100% will go to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims. So I'm looking forward to seeing that come out of the ground, hopefully in the next several years. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for this whole interview. It's been so rich. There's been so much on here, so many things that we could have spoken about even in more detail, but I believe it's been it's been great for uh, for those that are listening in. The pod, final question, podcast name, Seek, Go, Create. I always like to ask guests as we wrap up. Those are three words that are big words. They mean a lot. But does one of those words jump out at you more than the others? And if so, why? 
Yeah, for me, I guess create would jump out more. I found myself more and more in the role of a content creator, doing books and blogs and podcasts and uh, you know eBooks and such. And so um, that's something. You know, somebody asked me like 20 years ago. They said, I said, well, I'm not really creative at all because I didn't know how to do art, and I didn't know how to write poetry or anything like that. And he said, Oh, no, no, you're a business person. You're an entrepreneur. You're really creative. And I thought, Oh, really? And that's when I realized that was the case. Wow. Excellent. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. For those that are listening, I know that you have enjoyed this as much as I have. I have a big favor to ask of you. Please subscribe. If you're not already subscribed, that will connect you with us so that you do not miss any of the episodes. We release a new episode every Monday, but we have been known to add an extra episode on Thursdays every so often. Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast, it would be great if you would rate or review us, depending on which platform you listen on. But here, this, this is a big request, big, big favor of you. Please share this episode. People need to hear this message that Paul shared at the end about human trafficking as information on real estate and his story is so inspiring to so many. Please share this episode. I think everyone knows by now that I am a coach for business owners, executives, and leaders. And let me just tell you what I really love doing. I love doing this podcast, but I really love getting on the line with people, getting on the phone, getting on a video call, and just helping people, organizations become all that they were designed and created to be. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give away some free coaching calls every month and hopefully speak to you about your business, your ministry, your leadership role, or help you brainstorm new ideas, pivot your business, make some changes, do whatever we need to do to help it move to the level that you want it to go to. So I'm going to give away three free coaching calls per month. And here's all you have to do. All you need to do is send an email to connect at timwinders.com. That's connect at timwinders.com and just I'm going to spell it out here timwinders t-i-m-w-i-n-d-e-r-s.com that's pretty cool I'm able to spell my name that's exactly my name connect to timwinders.com and in the subject line all you need to say is something like I want a coaching call with Tim my team will attempt to get it on the schedule I'm going to uh, I'm going to most likely do three each month if I could get more in I will but they will probably take the first three every month get it on the schedule, reach out to you, and then they'll uh, they'll just schedule a 30-minute Zoom video call. They may also reach out and get some questions from you about your business and some of the things you want to discuss and talk about. And we will just get online and, and we'll have fun with it. Again, I love doing this. It's what I believe I'm called to do. And so I will look forward to hearing from you and getting those emails so that we can get online and help you and your business. I look forward to hearing from you and I look forward to us getting on a coaching call together. Thank you again for joining us today. We look forward to connecting with you on the Seek Go Create podcast in the near future.